free signups are the lifeblood of a product-led business. The more quality signups you get, the easier it is to grow. Yet, most companies don't have a process for getting more signups. That's why here at Product-Led, we created a new training program called Product-Led Acquisition. It's a four-week live training course that shows you exactly how to create SaaS landing pages that convert. And in this program, we'll teach you how to choose which features to show on your page, define the structure for your page, write every single headline with repeatable formulas, and create high converting visuals without any design experience. And the best part of this entire program is all of the copy will be completed during the workshops. So no doing homework and slaving away at the end of the program. No, you're actually gonna be doing it during the workshop and building this landing page. So this means you'll walk away with a fully written landing page and you'll have a battle-tested formula that is repeatable and will help you get a 10% uplift in signups. And our first training for this program kicks off on February 20th. To learn more, go to productled.com forward slash ACQ. That's productled.com forward slash ACQ. Hope to see you in the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Product-Led Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a really fun topic, which is all about how to make your job delightful if you are working in product. And today, I have here Anne-Marie, who is the head of product at Bowel. And she has a ton of awesome experience working at other companies such as Asana, Coinbase, Yammer, and all over the place. So she has a wealth of experience around product. And she we were just chatting about this, really nerds out about some of the fun things in products, such as collaboration, how to really kind of conquer some of that internal resistance you're going to face if you're working in product, because you're really kind of sitting at the center of trying to connect sales, marketing, engineering, and everybody together to create something truly meaningful and impactful for your customers. So uh, it's a lot of balancing hats. So Anne-Marie, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks so much. So excited to chat with you today, Wes. Likewise. And could you give us just maybe a little bit of your background, why you're so passionate about this particular topic around how to just make your job more delightful if you're in product? Totally, totally. Uh, well, my way background actually is um, I have what I, I like to call a, a deeply practical degree in medieval art history. Um, which, let me tell you, there were tons of jobs knocking down my door when I graduated, but I, I, I found my way to product management after a few years and in kind of a quest to find a, a career that would be never ending and opportunities to continue learning and, and stay on that really steep part of that growth curve, which is just such mm -hmm. a pleasant, such a pleasant, unpleasant place to be, if you know what I mean. So it's been a great joy working in product. And one of the things that I've, I've learned over the course of my career is, how so much of the material out there around how to be an effective product manager tries to kind of abstract and condense and produce these really beautiful, elegant frameworks and all mm -hmm. these different like processes. And they're great in theory and they can be excellent ways for you to start your learning journey. 
But in reality, product management is this is quite an emergent kind of field where you're doing emergent things and hopefully an emergent space in technology. And so like just applying one of those frameworks to your life and to your experience usually is going to end up with like a lot of friction points in your organization. And so one of the things that I learned earlier on in my career is just like how to shift from that perspective of like, all right, I am a product manager. I'm going to apply the star framework and the pearl framework and the rice (laughs) framework and like bloop, bloop, bloop. This is what we do. And it turns out if you could just do that, we wouldn't hire product managers. We would hire computers and we would plug in little integers into each of those things. And it would say, bloop, 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 here's what you do. (laughs) And so, so really shifting to a perspective of thinking about it as like surfing the waves of, you know, the organizational energy that you have at your company and how to connect with that energy, how to understand the different aspects of what uh, is important in your company, how all the different functions work together, how they don't work together, and really playing this game of like almost like sleuth, like internal sleuth of like, how does everything work here and how can I make it work better in order to get great things out to the customer? And maybe on the flip side of that too, like, I love that kind of opening to blue, blue, blue. Especially around like, yeah, was, you can apply some of these frameworks and yeah, it will give you some like potential things to do, but it's probably going to lead you in the wrong direction a lot of times too. But what are some of those other like big problems where you find like, hey, if you are uh, leading products, like what are some of those things like we're talking about like how to make this delightful, but what are maybe the flip side? Like what are some of those things that really are like frustrating where you're like, oh my goodness, this is the hardest part of leading product as a company? Yeah, totally. So it's interesting because there's definitely different levels here of, you know, what's challenging about leading product and what's challenging about being a product leader in an organization where you're working across different functions. So, you know, the classic situation here is like every function has its kind of optimizations. So engineering, they really don't want to ship code that's going to result in an engineer being woken up in the middle of the night because the site's down, right? So they have like this massive incentive to ship like really high uptime, high quality code. Marketing really wants to get like, what's the pop? What's the pop? What's the next pop? Sales wants to be able to promise things. They want to say like, oh, I got into a call with a customer that really wants this thing. And I told them that we could build it. And that means that person likes me and now wants to buy the product from me because I'm like offering them something. We have like this perfect personal relationship. And so you have all these different conflicting incentives. And product is really ostensibly that hub in the center of all these incentives that's trying to balance across. And one of the reasons why I think product management has been such a fascinating career, like watching this industry evolve over the past, say, five, 10 years, is that you know, as everything is speeding up, when there's friction between different functions, that friction is, it, you know, the organization's going really quickly, that friction becomes a fire. You know, that's that's where fire comes from, right? Like, you know, that's one of the ways to make combustion. And product management is really kind of think about it as kind of almost firefighting, but kind of getting ahead of that friction, trying to like smooth everything out. And it's, it's a very interesting game to play to try to find like, where's the organizational friction from these competing incentives? And I, I always find that like the best product managers and the best product leaders, and especially like the more senior you get in the organization, are the ones that are looking very, very abstractly and very deeply at what all the incentive mm-hmm. structures are at play and how to like find ways to align organizations to larger and larger incentive structures. So like, okay, how do we figure out how to balance what we both care about, which is the company growing. Okay, so if the company needs to grow, obviously we can't have our engineers up all night in the middle of the night because they can't build anything. And also obviously we need to like ship new things and obviously we need to be able to sell those things. There's all these different incentives that you can bundle together if you can kind of frame the conversation out. 
definitely. I love that analogy too you're giving about like every specific team has their own incentive. So you're just kind of sitting in the middle there trying to balance it, figure out what works best for not just the company too, but like the, the user, the customer and all those other competing priorities. And so what are like, what do you say are some of the main forms of friction? Mm. I think the main forms of friction, I mean, I, classic example of friction is when you ask for a date organizationally, if someone says like, when will this launch? Mm-hmm. Sales wants to know when this will launch, when they can promise a customer it'll be there. And so they really need to know like, when are we absolutely confident that it will be for this customer, like the latest possible date? Marketing has to deliver a bunch of additional materials. They have to like create, a, you know, maybe some landing pages. They've got to create some like maybe sales enablement materials. They have to go get assets and creative and maybe they're working with an external agency. And if you give them the same date that you give sales, then they're not going to have time to have gotten all that stuff ready if it comes in like a week earlier. And so the reality is there's a lot of ambiguity in dates. Like we are not fortune tellers. <laughs> Anybody who's worked in product can tell you like you never, it's very, very challenging to know when something's going to land. But if you start, if you give the same date to different teams without giving any kind of context around it, you will absolutely cause additional friction. So one of the things like, I I think it's just a point in case, I love telling people like, hey, this is the date when I like, I'm very confident that this will be live by this date. If you're looking for like, when can you tell a customer? And then on the other hand, if I'm telling someone like, when do you need to be ready to do your next bit of work, whether it's collateral or you know landing pages, things like that, giving them like, this is the earliest it could possibly be ready. So you can like back plan from there. And so really thinking not just like when someone asks you a question, like, when will this be ready? Not thinking about just what question they're asking from your perspective of like, when do you think it'll be ready? But what question mm-hmm. are they asking you from their perspective, which is when will this be ready so that I can do my job? And then giving the answer based on like the perspective that they're asking that question from. For sure. And then beyond dates, is there like, what are some of the other like big forms of friction that really, I don't mean drive the organization crazy or kind mm. of like rub it in the wrong way. Totally, um, totally. Notice too, from a product perspective. Yeah. So one of the classic ones that I see a lot in friction is the, especially coming from design teams. Mm-hmm. Every single design team I've worked with has always said, we never do V2s. We only ever ship an MVP. We never come back and like redo or kind of like polish or address. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because I've had this conversation with like four or five different product teams over my career where we're talking, we're all sitting in the room and we're like, the design team is pushing really, really hard for a lot of extra scope in the initial launch. And Mm -hmm. we know that they're doing that. And they're saying that they're doing that because they don't believe we're ever going to come back and add any additional scope. So they're like, this is our one shot to get this piece like to look good and to perform well and behave properly and all the good, like delightful UX, because we'll never come back and touch it again. And it's fascinating because I've never seen a design team that believes they do V2s. And many, many companies that I've worked in, I've gone back and been like, well, do we do V2s? And then I've gone back and looked through like everything we've shipped. I'm like, Absolutely. Like, look at this. We did a V2. We did a V2. We did a V2. We did a V2. So one thing that I found that's really interesting, actually, is is, um, just naming your features V2 internally can kind of shift that energy. Because if you just talk about like kind of, oh, we're doing a sharing dialogue. And then the next time we're doing like we're doing advanced sharing versus sharing dialogue V2. And it, it kind of help ease that a little bit. Because you can end up in environments where your design team, and I, again, I've seen this so many times, where the design team is really like high friction and pushing back against engine product 
to try to get a lot of extra scope in. And then obviously marketing and sales is like, hey, like we need these things to come faster. Like we try to keep the scope down. And so one thing you can do with that friction is, is continue to build trust. Like it always comes down to trust. A hundred thousand percent of the time it comes down to trust. But one way that you can build trust with your design team is like looking back and being like, hey, look, like it looks like, you know, we did revisit, we did revisit, we did revisit to kind of reiterate because it's so easy to forget as an individual. And it's so easy for you as an individual, perhaps on the design team to internalize some narrative that you've like heard once, like we don't do V2s. You're like, yeah, we don't do V2s. And presenting evidence to the contrary is one way that you can kind of combat that perspective. I will say you need to do it well. Like, you don't want to be like, um, excuse me, we launched a V2 last year and then we did one six months ago and like, <laughs> you're wrong. No human wants to hear you're wrong. But, you know, we're often very open to, oh, that's interesting. Like, let's look together. Let's go see if that's true. Like, what information would, you know, change our minds? So, yeah, that's another classic friction I've seen almost everywhere in my career. Yeah, there's different mindsets for that, for sure. I know, I forget if it was the, yeah, the people at Basecamp or somewhere else are like, yeah, we never miss a deadline but they do change scope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought it was kind of interesting. So it's like a lot of times, like that V1, it's like so easy where it's like, oh, great. Let's like launch more stuff. Let's add more stuff and make it complicated. And then it's like this timeline is just going crazy uh, because totally. they're like a month later than we initially wanted and all this other different stuff. So yeah, it is, it is great. I think when you do introduce, like you can have multiple versions, but which one if for the first one really solves that core pain and then let's solve that. And then if it really does work, we, or we need some more improvements, we can always launch it in the V2 kind of thing too. Yeah. W- one thing I want to say there, I've recently started using this analogy when it comes to scope that I think is really important because there's different ways to think about scope. A friend of mine mentioned recently, she works in renovation and she was saying that when people renovate their homes, the thing that often happens, the trap they fall in is they're doing this big renovation and then they try to save money at the end and they get like the cheaper tile or the cheaper appliance or, you know, like the, they spend less money on the finishes. And she said, it's such a shame because the finishes is what you experience day to day. And her strong mm-hmm. advice to her clients is, you want to limit the surface area that you're doing. So like, instead of redoing two bathrooms in a kitchen, just do the kitchen and then save money so you can have the really nice tile in the kitchen. And I like to think about that metaphor. And I use that metaphor with my team internally for how to think about scope cuts. Because a lot of times when people say scope cuts, they, they mean, well, let's get the cheaper mm-hmm. tile. Like that's a scope cut. And that's the scope cut that like really pains a good designer because they're like, oh, but I don't want to ship this with the <laughs> shitty tile, you know? And it also it's a scope cut that hurts customers as well. And so really totally. effective scope cutting is really about reducing the surface area that you're building in so that you can build in that surface area with really high quality, really high finish. And so that's something that takes a lot of foresight from product and is really a skill and product is to identify like, How much surface area can you absorb so that you can deliver with high finish? And when you're going to cut scope, is there surface area you can cut? Is there, is there like a feature you can cut versus the polish of the feature that you're building? Mm -hmm. I love that analogy. I think analogies are one of the, like the shortcuts to understanding anything and you nailed it because it's like, it truly is that it's like, if you can have that choice, it's not putting the cheap paint or cheap tiles on something. It's like, no, let's get this part like beautiful and people are going to enjoy this. The users are actually going to love it. They're not going to be like, what is this thing? It's like spammy looking. Totally, <laughs> totally. And the, the team too can be proud of it, even if it is a smaller section. Exactly, exactly. And that's just, I mean, I think that 
no customer is going to want, I mean, I will say there are certain customers in like, you know, maybe like the days of your and the more enterprise software categories where it's like, yes, give me two shitty looking features of forms. And like, I'll just learn how to use this, like lots of form input fields, but with the consumerization of software, and you know, I work in B2B collaboration software. I've spent years at Asana, at Yammer, at Microsoft, now at Vowel. With the consumerization of enterprise software, people expect really high polish designs. And that's coming as like, I mean, it was interesting to say that five years ago that people expect high quality consumer grade enterprise software. Now it's just, you know, that is just the case. And so ensuring that you are shipping fewer features so that those features that you're shipping are further polished is one of the best things you can do as a PM, which feels counterintuitive because you're like, oh, more functionality is more better. And it's like, no, actually, because you're going to set the customer expectation that you have a crappy product and they're going to lower their expectations overall and eventually churn. Totally. What other kind of mindset shifts do you feel like are very important? If you're leading products to just really enjoy your job more, <laughs> yeah. you found are like the super effective. Totally. So, so I mean, one thing about product is, you know, every function you work with has different incentive structures and those incentive structures are at odds with each other, which means that when it all comes to you, you are not going to make everyone happy. And in fact, you're probably not going to make anyone happy. Like you're, if it was easy to like be like, oh, this what is a like great the, job. <laughs> this is like the one path where everyone will be happy. Yeah. It's probably not a decision that reaches your desk. Like it's probably a decision that someone else made and like didn't ask you about because it's like obvious. So that mindset shift that like you are not going to make everyone happy is a really important one to be able to work happily in your job. And it's also an important mindset shift to discuss with your key stakeholders. So like head of engineering, if you're head of product, your engineering manager counterpart, if you're a PM, and make sure you have like a really good way to talk about the fact that you have different incentives. And that that means that you're going to often make different decisions. But at the end of the day, you're all trying to make the company successful. And so if you can continue to remember to like bring the conversation up to the level of like what makes the company successful. An example of this is we had a feature that we wanted to roll out uh, internally at Vowel recently. And the Inch team was a little bit nervous because it was like they hadn't done the full regression test that they wanted to do. And there was like a couple of questions about like, okay, well, should we hold this back for a few more weeks for a few more testing things that we needed to do? And the conversation that I surfaced was, hey, you know, that's a great question. Like there could be unknown issues. There's a risk in shipping this that incurs risk. But on the other hand, there's also risk in holding it back because we know that the reason we're launching this is because it's been a desired customer feature. There's a lot of interest. You know, if we hold this back for a few weeks, there's also risk to the company that people who come in and to the product and experience the product without this feature that is a core expectation that they have are going to be like, eh, I can't use the product and they're going to leave. So if we're thinking about balancing the company's priorities of like what's going to serve the customers best, you can balance the risk of introducing that bug versus the risk of holding that functionality back. And I found this to be a really effective conversation tool, especially with engineering, where you start, you know, just start having a conversation about like how big is the risk here? Like how bad is it if it happens? And then how likely is it to happen? And then how big is the risk of holding it back? Because that's also a risk. And then that starts to kind of normalize the conversation field. So you can kind of speak eye to eye. Totally. Is there any other like really helpful kind of like mindset shifts or recommendations that you have as far as like just 
really enjoying your job kind of more as far as, because it is like you mentioned, it's like, yeah, especially if like, let's say you're a people pleaser, it's like, this job is not going to please everybody. <laughs> so totally. it's like, you're like, you have to get some therapy for that <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, but what else do you find is like super helpful mindset shift wise for people? Totally. Yeah. So I'm going to do the political thing where I answer a slightly different question and then I'll come back to that one as well. Just cool. other things to, when you're thinking about enjoying your job, I find being very well resourced, really important. I remember mm-hmm. I, I saw a tweet one time from a product manager I really respect of VC now, um, Ellen. And she said that she's like, my secret superpower in product is that I sleep nine hours a night. And she's like, nobody really thinks about the fact that like being very well rested is yeah. a really, really beautiful part of being able to be an effective product manager. And it, when you have things coming at you and you can let them roll off because you're not kind of like high strong, you're not like at the top of your window of kind of emotional mm-hmm. tolerance, that's important. There's also, I think one thing that has been helpful for me in my career is just noticing when you're coming up towards important moments and deadlines, launches, things like that. Mm-hmm. noticing that you're going to be higher strung, like there's going to be a lot going on. You're not going to have slack in your day. And so when something comes up and you're like, I don't have time to handle that, you know, it's going to be a lot. And so preparing yourself emotionally, like letting yourself know like, oh, hey, like I've got to launch next week. I'm probably not going to have a lot of time. And just knowing that can allow you to mm-hmm. be a little bit, I mean, this is honestly like actually therapeutic advice. Just noting that your <laughs> internal state is like more amped will allow you to be more yeah. emotionally regulated. I also found it really like one of my favorite hacks, which is a bit of a mindset shift and then an execution shift is not answering every question. Like Mm -hmm. you don't actually have to answer every question that comes your way. And that's something that like as a PM, a lot of times what your job is, is to make a decision, to like think critically about something and make a really good decision. And a lot of times you'll, you know, go seek out data, you know, to inform that decision. But a lot of times you'll have that data in mind or you'll have the intuitions built on top of experience. But Mm -hmm. even when you have those intuitions built on top of experience, going through the effort of like digging in, making a good decision and then disseminating that decision and explaining it, it's effort. And it takes a certain amount of energy to do that. And the decision fatigue is real. And so when you are in an environment where you're like pushing really fast, startup specifically, you know, maybe coming up against a big launch, being Mm -hmm. more and more willing to not make certain decisions. Um, So this came up, you know, we have a big launch coming up and there's a question from the CEO yesterday. who's like, hey, have we thought about big thing to think about that would have big marketing implications? (laughs) And my reply was, I I didn't think about it. I intentionally like saw those words and I didn't let my mind absorb them. I didn't think about them. I didn't evaluate whether we should or shouldn't do that thing. I just replied, I said like, hey, this is a great question to have after launch. Is there any critical reason why we need to talk about it now? And choosing where to put your attention and knowing that you don't have to pay attention to everything that comes in is a really beautiful mindset shift that can save you so much of that like decision bandwidth to actually put towards the decisions that are important today. Yeah, I love that too. And I have been guilty on the other side of that too. And it's honestly, it's one of those things that it's like, I want people to be like that, just like that response where it's like, hey, is this like urgent? Is this important? Because a lot of times it's like other people, it's like, it's not that this is urgent. It's just the fact that it's like, well, 
I might forget it or something like that if I don't say it, which is probably like, okay, that's why there's a scheduling feature dummy on Slack. (laughs) You can wait. So yeah, there's great inventions for that too. And I want to do a double take on what you mentioned about being double rested because I, well, well rested because it is one of those like super hacks where it's like, yeah, if you want to make better decisions, it just starts with actually having great sleep. Uh, So you can actually be really well prepared for whatever that decision is. And there's so many studies we could always like quote where it's like, if you make or don't have like enough sleep or anything like that, you just make worse decisions. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important. And what are some of your strategies you'd recommend or tips for making better decisions? You mentioned a lot of great ideas around like maybe suppressing or delaying some potential decision fatigue that's coming up. But when it actually comes to like some of those big important decisions where it's like, you know what, you got to like balance the user insights or something else, like what are some of the ways that you recommend to just make better decisions? that isn't just based 100% on like, oh yeah, my gut feel. (laughs) Totally. I think about this a lot. I think uh, learning how to make better decisions is the job that a PM should be doing. Like technically you're going to be doing, executing on various things, but the real job of your career is like constantly getting better at making decisions. So I think about this in in a bunch of ways. I have a series of advice for people who are trying to get into PM or rather early in PM to start building a repository of predictions and measurements. And so one of the things that makes a really good decision is being able to like play forward how likely something is to happen one way versus another way and like pick a path based on the likelihoods of how things will unfold. And so getting really good at playing things forward in your mind is a skill that I think every PM should work on. And the way you get good at playing things forward in your mind is by actually making predictions and then measuring whether that prediction was right or not. And you can do this in all sorts of different areas. Uh, One of my favorite things I did earlier on in my career is that the PMs at Yammer, we used to like gather around the lunch table every, we always have lunch together. And we talk about like what was new in the world product wise, you know, what was going on. And then we would all make bets on like how many active users we thought that product would get. And like, you know, six months from now, how active is this going to be? And various things like that. And we would just kind of like all debate and be like, okay, why do I think this? Why do I think that? And then we would write it down and we, you know, write reminders. And oftentimes we'd put things actually at stake and then go back and measure and say like, okay, what actually was this? Who had it right? Who had it wrong? And use that as like a, as a, a reminder loop. There's also, I think it's, it's really important to do this if you're trying to get better at communication, classic PM skill. I always advise PMs as they're early in their career to write down what they think someone will say or ask in reaction mm-hmm. to a presentation. Like I'm, I'm going to present something to like our head of product. What questions are they going to ask? And then see like afterwards, like did they ask those questions? Like, was I able to accurately predict like what were going to be the key things there? I think another key thing with decisions is debating. Just like, I I love the concept of debates. I think product minds, people who are product minded getting together and sharing like, okay, how are you thinking about this? How are you thinking about this? And we actually formalized this. I had so much fun. We formalized this at Yammer where we actually would have debates, real, actual opening argument, opening argument, like counter argument, rebuttal, like debates. You know, we had a big debate about a feature that we're thinking about sunsetting. It was a very large feature. And we had, you know, a PM and a researcher and a data scientist on each debate team that were assigned randomly, like pro side, con side. And like, we had a real debate about it. And that was really great because when you're assigned the, like, the side that you don't necessarily agree with, 
and you still have to like dig up what those arguments are, it really helps shape how you think about deciding things. I think the other thing, I mean, there's a lot more to say about decisions. There's a great book out there I strongly recommend called Decisive. I forget who wrote it, but it's really good. It's about a lot about the process of making decisions, how our brains make decisions and how to like get better at that. The one thing that I love from that book, one of the things that I've kept with me for many, many years is when you're deciding between things, it's a very human tendency to say, I'm going to decide between A and B. And once you've done that, you've usually constrained the decision space. And you almost always have make worse decisions if you're deciding between A and B than if you're deciding between A and B and C. And so if you ever come up against a, like, we only have two options, one of the best ways to make a better decision between those two options is to come up with a third option. And not because the third option will be better, but because framing things as non-binary decisions really helps the human brain, like, evaluate things more effectively. So I love that. Yes. Well, I'm checking out that book. I looked it up. It's written by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. So yeah, there we go. Everybody read Decisive. <laughs> Love it. And I know one of the things you are super passionate about, mentioned it at the beginning too, and I want to dig more into because you have a ton of experience, especially even like working at companies that empower this, is just collaboration. Like what are some of the recommendations you have as far as collaborating better? Because it, it definitely doesn't come naturally for a lot of people including myself. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So it's interesting. I think the collaboration, there's so many different environments to think about collaboration. So there's the kind of direct collaboration between the people that you're working with, like in the trenches together, like, you know, the PM mm-hmm. and the designer and the engineer. And there's there's a lot there around the open mindset. There's a back into therapy land here. There's kind of like two default human modes. There's like open mode and like closed mode. And closed mode is like, you're trying to convince someone that you're right. You're trying to move something forward. Open mode is you're like, you're exploring something and getting really good at noticing your own physiological cues when you're in open mode or closed mode is one of the best life hacks for every kind of collaboration, whether your team collaboration or your friendship collaborations, there's anything because when someone is open, when you can detect that someone is open around you and they're in open mode, it makes you more open. And then you explore more freely and more collaboratively. And when you detect that someone is closed, like when someone's like disagreeing or like pushing an agenda, it closes you down. It's infectious. These these, these are contagious mindsets. And so you can end up like triggering into closed mode very easily from whatever reason, you know, someone says something that sounds like they're critiquing an idea and your brain immediately is like, wait, I have good ideas. Like I'm a good idea. Like (laughs) I couldn't have had a bad idea. And so you, you close. And then as soon as you close, they start to close and it just like kind of goes down. So one thing that I've learned is that, you know, you have physiological clues. Like when I'm going into close mode, I get like a little pinch behind my shoulders or like my brows will furrow, which I can see really easily when we're always doing digital, you know, meetings. Right now you're in close mode. I'm kidding. I'm in close mode. I'm like, Star. <laughs> <laughs> And so noticing those and then immediately pulling back out of it into open mode. can really help that collaboration. You don't always want to be open. There are a lot of times as a PM, you got to be like, nope, we're moving forward. We made that decision. Like, nope, nope, nope. And that's a skill. But when you're in the exploration and you're collaborating with people, like being able to detect when you've slipped into a closed mode and you didn't need to, it's really, really helpful. I think the other key pieces, again, I say it, it's 100,000% trust. 
finding ways to develop trust with your coworkers, with, you know, leads of mm-hmm. other departments, with your management chain is the 100,000, like that is the key to all of the success. And trust comes from interpersonal things. Trust comes from having had a conversation about why you're at this company. Like, why do you care about this company? Why is this important to you? And like sharing that openly and like building that bond. Whenever I found like a PM struggling with a manager or a manager's manager, and they're they're like, oh, I just keep getting like this feedback. I keep having to like do another cycle, like write another product spec. And it's like, it's just not going through. It's almost always because there's a, a foundational lack of trust there. It's not usually the execution. It's almost always not execution. It's almost always a trust uh, bond there. And so finding ways to develop those trust bonds, again, with the remote first environment can be challenging. You know, you got to book time. What are some of the recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. In a remote or distributed first environment, the booking time is, is really critical. Booking time, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't really love that a lot of our language has like very ballistic metaphors, but I do really enjoy this concept of like peacetime relationships where a lot of times PMs don't think to make relationships across different functions until mm-hmm. you need something or like something's late or like now, now you're in like kind of wartime. And so getting ahead of that and knowing that like building peacetime relationships is a core part of your job. There are the intro calls. Those are always awkward. <laughs> um, I've never, you know, like, oh, hi, one one what are you doing in this company? What do you like? Tell me about your pet. <laughs> exactly. Tell me about your pet. It's like, mm. those are challenging. Yep. But finding ways to, once you've been at a company for a little while, not necessarily that first one-on-one, but finding ways to have an interpersonal touch point. And maybe it's asking someone about their child or their pet, if you, you heard their name or like, you know, you see someone, I do this a lot. Well, like I'll see something on Twitter that's like some funny meme. And I know that like my coworker who really loves their cat is going to like that. So like I pull mm-hmm. that in. And kind of invest in those relationships the way you would, not just coworkers. And it's doubly important when you're not in person, because those kinds of things kind of build up this expectation of goodwill, where you kind of like learn what that person's about. They learn what you're about. And you can kind of invest like little drips. You kind of like invest in the bank account. You're like, oh, I like, I see you as a human. I know like you like these kinds of things. I'm going to send you like this weird meme. Or I remember one time, you know, I knew someone really liked Snickers and I don't know why, but I had like a Snickers bar. So I just like left it on their desk. Like I didn't, I don't know why I ended up with the Snickers bar because I didn't buy it for myself. And then (laughs) months and months later, we ended up in like a really contentious environment where this person head of compliance was really struggling with something that product needed to ship. But we had like a relationship on the fact that like, I knew they liked Snickers and I gave them a Snickers bar. And so we were like in it together and that really totally changed the relationship. So deeply investing in advance of needing that investment is really where it comes because you can only pull out of a Mm -hmm. bank account that's negative for so long. No, that's absolutely true. Always buy Snickers for people. I prefer (laughs) Snickers over Mars, so. (laughs) They are are better. I mean, but it's not not a Reese's, though. It's not a Reese's. Let's be real. We all know what the best candy bar is. (laughs) Okay. Well, sorry, I got to kick you off the call now. (laughs) Back to your earlier question, though, about like collaboration. One thing that I think people often forget in collaborative environments, we optimize when we're communicating we don't think about it, but we happen to optimize for the process of sending the information out. Like when I'm writing up a Slack message or when I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about like, how am I going to communicate to this person? And we don't optimize for the receipt. We don't optimize for how it will be read. We like write things that are easy to write. We don't write things that are easy to read. 
And so I am a huge champion of thinking about the fact that like when you put a message in a public channel on Slack, there's going to be probably 10 times as many people reading that message as the person writing it, right? And so thinking Mm -hmm. about how much their time is worth, it's worth really thinking about how to write it well so it will be read well. And this is a big, big part of communication and collaboration is, is again, you know, I mentioned this earlier, it's, it's not thinking about what question they're asking. It's thinking about why they're asking that question. It's not mm-hmm. thinking about how to write a message. It's thinking about how, how to write a message that will be read by this person. And like that kind of mindset shift, that frame shift can really smooth that interface between people. So I think very much about like, how do you get outside of your own head and try to get to the head of like, what does this person care about? What are their incentives? What are the ways in which they talk? Like, what are the the ways they use language? And how can you think about using your language in a way to match that such that they'll be more likely to understand what you're saying and understand what you're saying when they're like not paying much attention? Because that's the thing you always think like, oh, I'm writing this information. Like everyone's going to like read it and they're going to like pay a lot of attention. And like, no, they're not going to pay any attention. Like people pay very, very, very little attention. And so you have to think about like how to meet someone with where they're at with very little attention. So like always using numbered lists, not bulleted lists, like numbered lists, 100% of the time. Unordered lists are disasters in Slack. You know, (laughs) using bolds, using italics, using threads, like being cognizant of condensing your word choice to like the most precise and condensed word choice that you can. So that it takes as little cognitive effort to understand your message as possible. Huge fan of that. I have, I mean, I could speak endlessly about collaboration, thinking about, you know, working at Asana for like task collaboration, working at Yammer for like kind of Slack comparison. And then now Val thinking about like video conferencing, like how do you collaborate effectively, you know, in face-to-face, you know, in video when you're again through a digital interface. It's such an interesting space to explore because we're, as a species, we've kind of evolved for this this communication where I can like, I can see you, I can smell you. Like I can see, you know, if your hand, I can see if your feet have like started shifting to point towards the door and I'm like, oh, you're probably bored. Like all of these cues that we've built are like, our evolution around that you don't get in a digital interface. And so how do you build those cues back in is really interesting to think about from a product perspective, you know, because we're, we're building those things, but then also from an interpersonal connection, like how do you, as someone participating in a conversation, ensure that you're presenting in ways that are going to be received, you know? <laughs> yes. So I was, I was laughing because I was thinking about yesterday. I was um, researching, there's this new tool and it basically is AI for like eye contact. <laughs> creepy. It's really new. But yeah, I tried it out. I was like, this is creepy. I'm like, I'm always <laughs> looking, even if you're like writing notes or something, you're always looking at the camera. Oh my God, so that's terrifying. There is some of those like body cues and like, you know, being remote first kind of like culture and all that stuff too where it's like, oh yeah, some of these things, like it's not just the virtual backgrounds. You could be kind of anywhere you want, but like when it's like the eye contact too, which is like, when you think of in-person communication, it's such a big thing too. So, um, and that is actually a big part of like building trust too. It's like, yeah, I'm looking at you (laughs) versus like, okay, I'm actually just looking down. (laughs) You know, it's, it's really interesting when you talk about the kind of the AI trying to make eye contact. So, so one thing that stands out to me there is as product builders, we're often trying to use what is newly possible to like recreate what yeah. we used to do. And so like, oh, mm-hmm. well now we have AI. So now we can like recreate eye contact and things like that. Yeah. And that's a very common pattern of thought. And I, I think that 
What I'm really excited about in this new space, I mean, we're at Vowel, we're integrating, we just launched some generative AI functionality, adding a lot more, so much fun to work in the generative AI space. Wow. But I'm really excited about not like using it to do what like used to be possible and making creepy eye contact that's not really real and is uncanny. But using it for like eye contact. (laughs) That's like it's uncanny. It's deeply uncanny. But thinking more about like how do you make something net new possible? Like something that you've never Mm -hmm. thought to be possible before. Like being able to infinitely recall something that you said in a conversation because you have AI that's like keeping track of like what's going on in your conversations and you can like instantly go back to like, what was that thing I was talking with Wes about last week where, oh, he was talking about that eye tracking app and be able to go right back to that moment in your life. Like that's the kind of thing that's like uniquely possible now that we can be building versus thinking about how to like make the old way possible in the new environment. For sure. And as we kind of wrap up too, like there's a ton of good points here. You mentioned, I'll try and recap some of the big ones. Like building trust is obviously like massive. If you actually are going to enjoy your job, collaborating better, having that like open-mindedness versus like just being closed. There's some really good points there. And then really just, yeah, thinking of like bets, uh, making better decisions, making sure you take that sleep as well. Super important. If you were to like sum it up and maybe it's one thing you've already discussed or maybe it's something else, but what has been the one thing that you've found has been the most effective for you to really truly enjoy your job? Mm. I think that the thing that has really helped me just have the best time, like the best time. It's just remembering that we're inventing the future, right? Like we're inventing the future as a group of humans. Like I can't invent the future by myself. I need to like work with a group of humans and to kind of shift my mindset from me working as an individual to me being a part of like this larger organism, this larger entity. And like, I'm a high agency part of that. Like PMs are very high agency. We, we are very like capable of shifting and directing things. But at the same time, you can only shift and direct to the extent that you're integrated and that you're like one big, like, hey, let's all like, you know, we're very, very connected <laughs> and working together yeah. to invent the future. And when you think about it that way, and then when I've, when I've shifted my perspective that way, it's so fun to like try to figure out how can we make those connections better? How can I make sure I have these trust bonds with sales and with marketing and with my reports and, you know, with my colleagues? Mm -hmm. And how can we all work together with this mindset of like making the future possible? And I I think that just really shifts it out of the like, okay, I have like this deadline, I've got this next thing to do. And like, this person's mad at me because I didn't, you know, make a decision that's going to optimize for their function and like all these different things. And like shifting out of like the pressures of the experiences day to day and thinking broadly about the joys and the delights of working in community, working in orchestration with this large organization, however large your organization is, to invent the future. I like it. I think it like just ties back to really thinking about it as not collective terms, like what are we creating together to sure you could create something interesting on your own, but together it's like what you can be able to create in the future is just something much, much greater than yourself in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't possibly create the things that I do day to day as a solo individual. And I think all the interesting things to create need large groups of people creating them. And PMs get to be right in the middle of that, getting everyone together, getting everyone to like mush in and go forth. Yes. All right. So if you're listening to this and you want (laughs) to... 
<laughs> rally everyone together, make them mush together <laughs> in a way that's going to create something amazing for the future. Yes, definitely become a hat of product. <laughs> <laughs> Strong recommend. Cool. Now, where can people learn more about you, Anne-Marie? Absolutely. I'm all over the internet. Twitter, I'm Tweet Anne-Marie. I'm on Medium, also Tweet Anne-Marie. Uh, you find me in various podcasts. Uh, my company, Vowel, vowel.com. We got that top-level domain. Nice domain. <laughs> Yells. Vowel.com, especially if you're interested in you know, being a more effective communicator and collaborator in your day-to-day work. Vowel is an incredible tool for that, especially working with new generative AI functionality that we've built in. And I think we have a discount for your listeners. Product LED is the discount code that'll give you three free months of Val.com. Awesome. Well, thank you. And yeah, that sounds awesome. As far as the quick high-level overview of what Val does, I want to just like give us a two-liner. Totally. Absolutely. So Val is a kind of a complete meeting solution. So you can think about it as a little bit like Zoom plus Google Docs, plus Notion, plus Loom. So it's a, it's an environment you set your agendas. It's a meeting tool. It's an actual conferencing platform you log in. It has automated you know, transcriptions, clipping and sharing. So you can do basically anything that you can use Loom for on anything you can use Zoom for. And with your little AI assistant kind of baked in there, taking notes for you as you go. So collaboration platform for making your, the knowledge of your meetings at your company accessible where you can search infinitely backwards through any, you know, any question you've asked a user in a user interview, you can just search for that question and find all the answers right there. So a really effective tool for taking the meeting content that you have day to day and making it accessible, searchable, shareable knowledge. Yeah, that's so cool. And yeah, I know for a lot of us like knowledge workers, it's like so much value is in our meetings. (laughs) We don't really think of it as something where it's like, you know, there's tools for like highlighting books like Readwise or something like that, where it's like, okay, great. I can like find all my highlights from all the books, but then from all your meetings, yeah, too, that is super underrated. (laughs) Totally, totally, yeah. Cool, well, thanks so much for coming on, Anne-Marie. Thank you so much, Wes. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, We will definitely create more content just like this episode. (laughs) And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.